What's going on, man? How you doing? I'm good. I'm feeling really good. I'm great. I'm glad to be home. Well, I got a really big family, both in numbers and they're also just like really big people. You know, like we're all like six two. Every year, we haven't done it in a while, just because everyone's gotten older and kind of moved across different places of the country. And every year, though, growing up, we used to go to Sea Isle. Sea Isle is like a little city in New Jersey. It's the Jersey Shore, right? Everybody here is Jersey Shore, and they think obviously the show. And Jersey Shore itself, I can't remember which one that was filmed in. I think it was Seaside Heights, actually. But Sea Isle is a little city that's like really south on, on the Jersey Shore, and it's quiet. And like, it's just really pleasant and it's chill. And I've just had some of the best times of my life there. It was so cool to go back there for the first time with Julian and just put him in like the middle of the living room. And because in these living rooms, like all the houses in, in, at, at Seattle kind of look the same where they're all like the same exact little beach house over and over again, you know, and I just have all these memories of like 20 huge stoddards like packed around a, a living room or like around one of the uh the porches and i got i had like a real surreal moment while I was sitting on the couch and i was like oh my god this is the same exact moment plus everyone's like 15 years older and now there's like this new little peanut that was just kind of bouncing around like boing 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 <laughs> going around from from every person so it was uh it was really great it was a lot of traveling and it was like challenging because it was just me and him but I think that's going to be one of those like little moments that, that burns in, in your brain, you know, and I'll have that one for a while. That's cool, man. It's always great to have traditions like that. Is your, is your family mostly from PA or are they also in Jersey? No, they're all from PA. Have you been keeping track? So I wasn't planning to do this. Obviously, this is not a political show, but have you been watching what's going on in PA with uh, Dr. Oz? Running for a Senate seat there? No, but I saw it on Twitter the other day and I was dying at the memes <laughs> that people were coming up with. Being meme roasted on Twitter must be like the most terrifying thing ever because I was dying laughing. Oh my God. Okay. So I, um, I guess for people who don't know, spent a little time living in Pennsylvania when I was a kid, really enjoyed it. I love kind of the culture, the people out there. Yeah. And if you haven't been keeping up on this, I live in Texas now. So I've pretty much got zero stake in Pennsylvania politics as do most people who live anywhere else in the country. But there's this guy, I mean, Dr. Oz is like running for a Senate seat. And one of his main opponents is this guy, I think it's John Fetterman. Yeah. Who seems like a real, I mean, I don't know much about him, but from the outside, he seems like a real kind of like grassroots salt of the earth guy. And the reason this is so entertaining is that Fetterman is absolutely destroying Dr. Oz on social media. Like, it's like, it's one of these situations where you have this like huge star who is running for office. And then you've got like a local guy who's like, nah, he's, you know, he's a total poser. And the local guy knows social media better than this like massive media legend. And dude, he's destroying him. Like, there's so many hilarious things that he's done. It's funny that you mentioned the Jersey Shore because he did a couple of things for a little bit more context. There's this thing that he keeps kind of leaning on, which is that Dr. Oz does not live in Pennsylvania. And Mm -hmm. I think it was really recently that he moved there or he changed his, you know, his, I want to say citizenship. He changed his, uh, wherever he lived to Pennsylvania in order to run for the seat. And so Fetterman keeps saying like, yeah, he's like, this is a New Jersey guy. He's not a, he's not a Pennsylvania guy. He doesn't care about you. And so all of his stunts revolve around this, but he does hilarious stuff. Like he'll, he flew a sky banner over the Jersey shore that just said, welcome home. Mehmet or like welcome home Dr. Oz or something like that heart 
heart emoji, John. <laughs> he got Snooky from the Jersey Shore. You know that uh, Cameo app where you can like pay people to. Of course. Yeah, he got he got Snooky from the Jersey Shore. I don't know how, exactly how he did this, but he her recording is pretty clear. She's not aware that she's talking to Doctor Oz. So she yeah. opens this thing up and she's like, "Hey, Mamet, like I I heard you're searching for a new job." In Pennsylvania, I'm not sure why you'd ever want to leave Jersey, but don't worry, it's just temporary. Like, you'll be back. <laughs> you'll be back someday soon. Like Jersey misses you. Absolutely roasting this guy, and then all these people are taking pictures with Doctor Oz, going like, "Hey, I took a picture with a uh, a tourist from Jersey." <laughs> <laughs> He's even funding his campaign with bumper stickers, and you know how bumper like you know if you're running for office, you'll usually sell a bumper sticker that says like, you know, Stodzy for Tennessee or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. This guy Fetterman is funding his uh, a good portion of his campaign by selling bumper stickers that just say "Oz for New Jersey," <laughs> and I love it. I love the like, yeah. I, he's raised you know millions of dollars. I've talked to other people from PA. They seem to like they yeah. He's definitely got some support down there. But I just love I love the like David and Goliath use of media. Mm. And by the way, I mean this is not really that much of a diversion. We should just kind of point out. You know, a lot of what we talk about on this show is related to media and attention getting and stuff like this. And I think this is a perfect example of how when you really know how to tap into kind of like the humor of crowds or you have your finger on the pulse of society, Mm -hmm. having a huge pre-existing audience is not as much of an advantage as it would be in other situations. So here you have this guy who's I mean, Oz is huge. How big is his show? I don't even know where you can find the number. Yeah, he's got millions of viewers all over the country. And um, this little local guy is just like taking him down at the knees. So anyways, shout out to uh, to you guys, to Philly, PA, and uh, and to New Jersey. Shout out to Dr. Oz. So. It's a good place to be. It's a good place to be from. And some days I really missed it. And then other days I'm like, I'm glad that I get to travel and, and live in new places and, and check out new stuff. But I'm, I'm always really grateful that like, that's where I was brought up. You know, it's a good spot. Speaking of attention grabbing, I want to, I want to, we got a bunch of stuff to get into today. I have a little case study that I've been focused on for the last couple of days. So I want to talk through that. Then I told you this via text, but I want to talk about it here. I'm working on my first business acquisition and I'm looking at a bunch of options. We can talk about that whole project if we want to, but. I'm specifically vetting an option and I want to get your take on it. It's a lead gen site. So I'm going to. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Like we'll dig it. I actually want to spend a little bit. Like we'll, we'll go through the milk road. It'll be sweet, but I really want to make sure we get to the questions on this lead gen thing. Cause I think that's going to be super actionable for people. And then I, like, I'm sure we'll get into some other stuff as well, but I have like one or two other things that if we have time for, we got to talk about. So let's start with the milk road. Cause let's do it, man. like you mentioned last week, we want to start doing. More regular case studies here, just breaking down great examples of people who are building companies, whether they're services or media businesses, really showing people how these things work and like calling out some of the more, I don't know, unique things that we see going on out there. Yeah, and like this, off the beaten path. Totally. I'm going to start sharing my screen now. But we'll, as always, oh, the host has disabled. You've disabled me. I didn't disable um, you, bro. I would never <laughs> do that to you. I'll share my screen. We'll talk through it like we normally do. So if you're listening to this, you shouldn't miss a beat. I'm excited um, about this one, man. You pulled out the big guns. Yeah. Well, a lot of people have asked for this. So for anybody who's brand new to the show, my day job is I work uh, at this multi-million dollar newsletter called The Hustle. 
And uh, part of my focus for the last couple of years has been really digging into the media industry, the newsletter industry, learning how multi-million dollar newsletters function. And so every once in a while, I'll share case studies on Twitter. And I ask people, I think it was a couple months ago now, I said, you know, I'm going to do more case studies. Which newsletters do you want to see me break down? And a lot of people have told me the Milk Road. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason for it. First of all, how familiar are you with the Milk Road? I just want to, I don't want to say anything. Let's give me, give me a pulse for where you are on this publication. I'd say I'm, I'm five out of 10. I've talked to Ben on Twitter a couple of times. He seems really cool. Uh, Sean was on my podcast a while back. He and I chat on Twitter every now and then. I know the subject matter of it. I know that they use Beehive, which I thought was pretty cool <clears throat> because, um, what's his name? Tyler, I think. Yep. Is one of the first people at Morning Brew created his own Substack competitor and I like him a lot. I like to root for him. And I think that Beehive has a lot of advantages over Substack. We'll see if they can really get that like momentum to be able to take them on. And then obviously I've read probably three or four issues. I know they have kind of that new millennial type humor, a lot of visuals, a lot of memes, a lot of like personal anecdotes. And then I know their growth has been huge. So I think they're probably at what, like 120,000 subscribers within a year or so. Okay, cool. One more thing I would add to that. That's a good, that's a good summary for anybody who is not familiar with it. The one or two other things that I would add, just super high level is that it's a crypto newsletter. So specifically focused on, uh, I think the the name Milk Road is kind of a play off of Silk Road. Yeah, great name. Uh huh. So it's a crypto newsletter. And yes, they're growing super fast. They started January of this year. It's now July when we're recording this. So they went from zero to 150,000 plus subscribers in the last six months. Hey there, it's Tim, and I need to take a moment to tell you about this show's sponsor. It's a product called Hype Fury. When I was able to speak to Yannick, uh, who is the CMO, one of the founding partners of Hype Fury, and he agreed to sponsor the show, I was so thrilled. And the reason is because I have personally used Hype Fury for the last three years, and it has allowed me to build my social media following and my personal brand to over 70,000 followers. I could not have done it without Hype Fury. And I, I really, really mean that. I use this product every day and it's added so much to my business and to my life. So Hype Fury is a social media scheduling tool. It has three main features that I think separates it from every other tool. One, it, it allows you to quickly create content and schedule them. So it's a very nuanced feature, but it's so helpful. Basically, I, I sit down at my desk in the morning and I type out my tweet, I type out my LinkedIn post, and then all I do is I hit enter. And Hype Fury schedules it at the opportune time on Twitter and on LinkedIn. I don't have to think about it any more than that. All I have to do is sit down and create my tweets, create my posts, hit enter, and Hype Fury does all the work for me. Uh, second, Hype Fury makes it so that you can easily create threads. And threads have been the biggest value add for me in growing my following. So threads really helped me grow my following on Twitter. And those threads format themselves into longer form LinkedIn posts on LinkedIn. It's actually kind of funny. I made a video about this not too long ago about how, yes, like you want to create threads on Twitter. You want to be a thread boy because I'd say like 80% of my growth on both Twitter and LinkedIn have been from threads and long form posts. And I wouldn't have been able to format any of this without using Hype Fury. 
Uh, and then third, Hype Fury is really good for keeping you inspired. So w- what it does is it it shows you some of your most popular tweets and your most popular posts. And it, it basically gives you information. It gives you inspiration as to what your audience is looking for and what they most actively engage in. So you're never sitting at the computer thinking, oh man, like, what am I going to say today? What, you know, what kind of content am I going to create today? It's constantly feeding you new ideas, new inspiration, and it allows you to, to quickly create this content so that you can continuously get yourself out there, continuously build your brand, and most importantly, turn that social media following into newsletter subscribers. So through Hype Fury, I've been able to grow my personal email list, timsods.com, to over 30,000 followers. That's turned into a business within itself. It's really helped me grow the Copy Blogger newsletter. We're at 110,000 followers right now. A whole lot of that is is also because of Hype Fury. So please, this is a product that I use every single day. I personally vouch for it. You can check it out at hypefury.com. H-Y-P-E-F-U-R-Y.com. And if you have any problems with it, you can send me a DM on Twitter and I'm sure I can convince you as to why it will add value to your life. So hypefury.com. Thank you so much to Hype Fury for sponsoring the show. And let's get back to the episode. I'll tell you the thing that I like the most about this is their content strategy. These guys are doing stuff with content and like the user experience that I think it's so refreshing to see. It's very rare, even inside the newsletter industry, even, you know, among other paid or, or sort of like revenue generating newsletters where the stakes are high. A lot of people are not doing what the Milk Road is doing, and I think they're suffering for it. So I want to talk through their, we'll talk through their content strategy, we'll talk through their growth, their monetization strategy. But to me, the thing that stands out the most is the what they're doing with content. So we'll get into that too. So let's dive in. As I mentioned, we talk, we're, we're talking through more and more of these types of businesses now. And so there's a model that I want people to start getting used to as we're talking through how media companies work or how creators make money. Tim, you and I have outlined sort of the three-part model where you start with cash flow and then you build an audience and then you leverage that audience to sell paid products. And I think that's a really good, super clean-cut, basic description of how this works. For newsletters specifically, though, there's a model that um, we came up with uh, at the hustle inside of like a whole bunch of research that we did on this. We call it the newsletter engine. And I'm going to talk through the milk road and the newsletter engine is going to be the map for understanding how the whole business works and how these pieces play together. Anybody watching this is going to see sort of like a visual breakdown of what this looks like. But to describe it, you can basically describe, you can imagine three layers that stacked on top of each other. At the very bottom, you have the product layer, which is the foundation for everything. That includes pretty much anything that's related to how people experience your newsletter. And the reason it's at the bottom is because it's the most important thing. If you don't have great content, literally nothing else matters. There's no growth hack that's going to make your newsletter great. There's no special monetization strategy that's going to make it great. So product is at the very bottom. The next layer up is monetization. And then the very top layer is growth. And the reason they're stacked that way is because uh, inside this visual model, it's like growth feeds down into your monetization strategies. And then they sort of like build on each other to turn attention into money. And so we won't get too deep into the technical, but I just wanted to lay out that visual model first, product, monetization, growth, because we're going to talk through it 
in that order. Product is at the very bottom. You're laughing. Just the milk carton character they come up with is so funny. Thank you. Yeah, it's so good. This is the, this is my favorite part of this entire business. And I'm going to tell you why. So if you're not watching, <laughs> Tim's referring to a mascot that the Milk Road recently launched. He's called the Milkman and he's like a carton of milk with arms and legs and a smile on the face. Kind of like if anybody's from the nineties and you remember Pizza Hut's old character. Definitely. Do you remember that? Kind of looks like Gumby. It looks, oh my God, that's a throwback. Yeah, yeah. he looks exactly like Gumby. This is brand new. The Milk Road, they went through a rebrand when they hit 100,000 users. And I'm glad you pointed this out first because to me, this is my favorite thing about what they're doing. I, talk, I talked to Sean last week and specifically when I saw this, so this rolled out maybe, I don't know, a month ago or so. I saw this and I said, yo, can I interview you? Because I really want to learn how you guys thought through this rebrand. I think it's brilliant. So the reason I think it's brilliant is not only does it look good, like it's, you know, it's like clean cut, it looks, it looks great, but this new character now features into so many different aspects of their content. They're yeah. using it. I'll describe it for people who are listening. Like he's at the top, you know, he's like lounging at the top in like swim trunks and a Hawaiian t-shirt. And he just looks like he's there to party, have a good time, welcomes you right into the newsletter. Then as you scroll down, they do some things that a lot of different financial newsletters do. So they have uh, like almost the equivalent of a stock ticker mm -hmm. tracker, except instead of stocks, it's tracking uh, the price of different crypto coins. Well, the way this used to look is they would just use the, um, yeah. the logo of the crypto coins. But now they have custom versions of the milkman sitting next to each one. And he's been decked out specifically for each coin, which is... Awesome. And I don't know too much about crypto, but I would assume people who are really into crypto, I'm, I'm going to assume that the way he's been customized here probably relates to like what maximalists for each of those. Yeah, coins yeah, yeah. a little bit. Feel like. So he's customized there. They have the fear greed index, which is sort of like a daily take of uh, what the public perception is related to these coins. And, you know, it goes from extreme fear all the way up to extreme greed. And every day they show you like what the index is. And <laughs> there's a little customized version of the milkman there who his, whatever his, uh, I don't know, his attitude has been adjusted for whatever today's yeah, his expression. Index is. He looks, he looks a little nervous. He's not quite ready to jump off a cliff, but he looks a little nervous. Yeah. And then throughout the rest of the piece, you'll see the milkman in two other, two other ways, or at least two other ways. He's on all the section dividers, just like, which is great. Just like a little reminder of you know who you're really kind of talking to as you're going through this or like a way to inject personality and kind of keep people oriented and very frequently you'll see him incorporated into memes that they're using for the day so you know i'm looking at like a ripoff of blues clues with the milkman's face on it or kermit the frog with the milkman's face on it so i think this is brilliant and i'm going to tell you why actually let me start with why sean went with this so they did this rebrand recently We've done a rebrand in our newsletter too. It took us like six months. It was pretty difficult. It's pretty involved. You have to like understand what story you're trying to tell and stuff like that. And so when I asked Sean, I said, Hey, talk me through this. How did this actually work? And like, you know, how long did it take you guys? They did this entire rebrand in four weeks. And he said part of the reason they were able to do that is because he didn't overvalue the minutiae of the rebrand. They basically focused on a few key things. So one, he said, we want to make sure that the, the way the content is organized is super easy to consume because from a newsletter perspective, that's one of the most important things. Two, we want to pick like one brand color that we're going to hammer home. 
over time. We don't care so much exactly what it is. It can't be something that we hate, but you know, whether it's like light blue or semi light blue or something like that, doesn't really matter. We just want one color that's going to be the color, right? And then the third thing he said is we want some kind of memeable character that's going to be the mascot for the newsletter. And there's a lot of reasons for that. He's part of the content. He uh, is sort of like can join the conversation because memes are such a big part of the way people uh, converse. And then one of the things that I asked him about is I'm like, and it's the thing that jumped out at me immediately is that from an editorial perspective to have a mascot or a main character that your newsletter is kind of from completely changes the ball game in terms of what it takes to run the newsletter. And this was my favorite part. I don't know if this jumped out at you, but you can do a whole bunch of things. So at Trends, we have anywhere from two to four plus writers that are all writing the same newsletter week to week. And one thing that's kind of difficult is for everybody to navigate the process of like, like whose voice are we writing from? Yeah. Am I writing from my perspective as Ethan? Or is it more like Trends perspective? Or is it something else completely? And what the milkman allows you to do is like instantly answers that, right? Everyone, it's kind of like writing from his perspective. But more importantly, logistically, if you're a newsletter owner, if you're running one of these things, it allows you to cycle writers in and out as the mm -hmm. business continues to grow mm -hmm. without skipping a beat or having to completely like refigure out what the voice is or anything like that. So I was really glad that you pointed out the milkman first because it's my absolute <laughs> he's, favorite he's thing. So funny, dude. <laughs> like he's just so, so crypto. You know what the uh, inspiration for him was? No, who would it be? <laughs> it was you. No, uh, <laughs> the Pepe the Frog. Do you know Pepe the Frog? Yeah, of course. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that makes and sense. We, uh, years ago for Stasi, we thought the same thing. We had a little alien, and um, our inspiration was that alien from uh, Toy Story. You know, those little group of aliens in the... Um, the claw. Yeah, exactly. The claw. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, we used an inspiration for him. We since dropped it because... Healthcare professionals aren't as like gimmicky as media consumers, but we were trying to, and, and actually the, the inspiration for the character was the guy from Toy Story, but the idea in general was from Moz, actually. I don't know if you remember Moz. They had the little Moz robot. Yeah. Um, and I always associated those kind of characters with, with what Moz did in the very beginning. So I, I love it, man. I, I think he's so clever. You're never going to forget him. Right. And, you know, it's ostensible. It's a really valuable asset to have over mm -hmm. the years, too. And I think this is one of the other things. So anybody who pays attention to Sean knows that, like, he's kind of a genius when it comes to frameworks for thinking. And yeah. it's frustrating sometimes because I disagree with some of his ideas. And, like, I want to not like him sometimes. Like, when he's super bullish on certain crypto things, I'm like, ah, oh, this is so... I Like, <laughs> I want to hate this guy. And then... The next thing he'll say is just so sharp. So like he was talking about, you know, how he thought through this. And just like you'd expect, there was like a really interesting framework behind it where he's like, yeah, you know, I think creating a character that's memeable and is like part of the public conversation on crypto is going to just be a really valuable asset to have long term. And I completely agree, especially given another thing that he said recently, which is just related to like the times that we're working through. So we've done an episode already on potential recession yeah. it's gonna, gonna be a tough time for business and a lot of people like if you're just starting something i think a lot of people are probably hearing questions like hey is this really the time to start like do you really believe in this idea stuff like that and one thing that he said is like yeah i think this is actually the time to grind for a couple of years because 
all the competition is going to fall away. And then I'm going to mm-hmm. have like two, three years established in this industry as a voice and an authority. And then, you know, when the money finally comes back, where's everybody going to go? They're going to go right to you. And so that is not specific to crypto. I think that is sort of like industry agnostic at this point in time. If you're thinking about getting into something, obviously you have to be responsible with you know, whether or not you can actually pull it off and whether you can grind through. But this is not the time to be super conservative per se. It's the time like this is going to separate you from future exactly competition. Exactly. Okay. So we've talked a lot here about the milkman, but I just want to quickly recap and show or, or take everybody back to that model for a second. Okay. So this product foundation, which I mentioned before, it uh, deals with three main categories of how people experience your newsletter. So there's your editorial or your content strategy, which I think the milkman is a perfect example. You've also mentioned their humor and it's a very funny email. If you read it, like I don't even care about crypto. But I genuinely enjoy this newsletter. They're funny. Also, here's another thing that I think not enough newsletters are trying right now. They're experimenting with stuff. Oh, yeah. this was a this was a point that I wanted to try and make to other people who might be going through this. So they're experimenting with a lot. So if you look at things like, well, the milkman is brand new. That's one good example. But there's another, which is let me see some like recent examples here. So they're experimenting with different ways of inserting their writers into some of the um, writing. As I mentioned, it can be kind of confusing when you have several writers who are all helping produce the same piece of content. How do you get them in there while keeping the whole thing cohesive? And so they're experimenting right now with these things called milk road reactions, where, yeah, the whole newsletter is kind of written from one cohesive voice. And then about halfway through, you'll have a couple of floating heads just commenting on a story. It, <laughs> and it's a little thing, but it's like, when you're in the trenches every single day trying to figure out how to navigate that, this is a great idea. And I think people should should steal it. Not just the tactical execution, but this concept of experimenting. And the last thing I'll say about this, because I don't know how many active writers we have here. They don't probably won't want me nerding out the entire time. But the last thing I'll just say about this is if you look at the archives, this is a really important thing that I think not enough people do. Look back at the archives and you'll see how things have changed over time. And the important thing to learn here is that like, you don't have to be perfect in order to take something into the world. In fact, I think Sean is like a, you know, he is a big advocate for this. And so if you read the story of how the Milk Road was founded, he says, he's like, you know, we came up with a name in like an hour, you know, or 20 minutes of just kind of brainstorming names, brainstorming an idea. We thought about getting a logo, but then uh, we're like, that, that's actually just going to take too long. So why don't we just build one in Canva? And so for a long time, their logo was literally like a clip art of a bottle of milk. And then, you know, they decided that if they hit 100,000 readers, they would rebrand then. And so when they finally hit it, sure, they rebranded, but there's like a sharp eye will still notice there's a bunch of stuff in here that's not quite the same, like the extreme fear to extreme greed, colors on that have changed. The fonts have, you know, this is the first full issue with the new rebrand. And you can see that like thoughts have changed. Think all kinds of stuff has continued to change. So the big point here is that I think these guys are doing a killer job of experimenting and they're doing it in a really fun way and not enough newsletters are approaching their work like this. I, I, I really think people should check this out if you're like into editorial strategy at all. So that's the content side. There's two other aspects of product, which are your tech stack and your community. So tech, you mentioned, 
which was Beehive. These guys are running on Beehive. And one of the cool things about that, which we'll talk about in a minute when we get to growth, is as you said, Beehive is kind of a Substack competitor. It's a newsletter, all like all in one newsletter platform built by uh, Tyler Denk. And he was, you know, the first hire at Morning Brew. Uh, he was their growth engineer. And so, like, a lot of people don't necessarily know this, but he was instrumental in a lot of Morning Brew's early growth. But, like, there's two things that, uh, in particular, that I think are pretty cool that he did. So, he built out the system behind their uh, referral platform, their yeah. referral engine. Mm-hmm. And the other is the system behind their ad sale engine. And um, Morning Brew has a very robust ad sale, like custom ad sale CMS that handles everything from uh, touch points with the clients to transferring assets to the copywriters to all that kind of stuff. So when he left and started this company, he brought a lot of the things that he knows newsletter founders need to the table. And the reason it's interesting for Milk Road is they're saying that like I saw an interview that said somewhere between 10 and 15% of their growth is just from the referral engine that's built into Beehive. Wow. Yeah. They don't have any Beehive doesn't have like an ad network right now, but you know, who knows what they're going to keep building as they keep going. But anyways, tech stack, super simple. It's just Beehive. And yeah. if you go to their homepage, that's the Beehive homepage. Great example of how you don't have to overthink this. And then community, last thing on the product side is, dude, they're great at interacting with people, man. Like, I'm still kind of digging deeper into their community strategy. I think there's one or two interesting things right out of the gate. One simple one is just their sign-up email. Right after you sign up, you get this kind of like welcome email. And a lot of people use these welcome emails as a chance to be like, hey, make sure you move us to your like priority mail. You don't go to spam. The bulk of this is questions for whoever just signed up. Like, hey, a couple quick questions for you. You know, who are you? Are you beginner deep into crypto? What are you hoping to get out of this? And then cereal. What do you put? What do you put in your, or do you put the milk in first or the cereal first? So right out of the gate, like fun interaction with the community that's not really necessary, but definitely changes their understanding of who they're talking to and changes how you feel about the newsletter. And then they have like more robust stuff too. Like, so they did a a grant, I think like a $25,000 grant where they were giving away money for people to build crypto projects. And that's, I think, an example of a much more robust community strategy, but they're very community driven, which I think you do a good job of. Yeah. Okay. So next level up, uh, monetization and then growth. And these, I think, are going to be a little bit, well, they're going to be a lot shorter because this is still very early in its life. So monetization, as a quick reminder to everybody, there's three ways to monetize a newsletter. You have ads. You have a paid front-end product, which is a low-price newsletter. Then you have a high-price back-end product. Frankly, I think based on the industry these guys are in, they've got potential to do all three of those as they go. Not every newsletter necessarily has that. Right now, though, it's just ads. And so I did a little bit of snooping around. Uh, It looks like they started ads about six weeks into their journey. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty early or that's fast for most people. But the thing is that like growth-wise... You know, Sean's got this huge Twitter audience, which definitely helped kick things off. And their timing was perfect. And their timing was perfect. Yeah. Well, this is super interesting. Here's something that people can do if they're if they are ever trying to break down like a newsletter that they like or any really any company. You just go to Similar Web, drop their uh, URL into it, and it'll show you a couple of things. So it'll show you. I don't know how accurate these are, but I'm assuming they're relatively accurate. For the month of May, they had 295,000 website visits, which is substantial, obviously. 
But it shows you too, like what the trailing few months looked like. And to your point, they were definitely in a, a good timing period for crypto. The first two or three months, four months of the year, crypto was on a pretty good run. And you see that in their traffic numbers. And then obviously when trip, when it, when it tanked, uh, that had an impact on their traffic as well. But I don't know how much of this is paid and like how much they just adjusted their spending after mm. a collapse or something like that. But monetization is pretty simple for them. They're selling ads. They have one ad spot. We've done in-depth conversations about how ad inventory works in the past. So we can link those up in the show notes. Uh, long story short, though, if they wanted to, based on what I've seen in other places, they could get that one ad probably to somewhere between two and five million dollars if, if they wanted to before they'd have to like build out more inventory or start segmenting their list. And then in terms of growth, nothing tremendously surprising here so far. I mean, like I said, their founders got a pretty substantial audience, uh, top 50 podcast in the world, plus got 200 and some odd thousand followers on Twitter. So that helps. They're also just really good on social media, like Twitter. They've written a series of viral threads. I always like how they, okay, where do I start with this? You and I have been talking about how to use Twitter more to grow our show because we hardly ever promote it. And I was thinking a lot, does it make sense for us to use ourselves as the brand or should we use the copy blogger Twitter as the brand? And I looked at Milk Road and I looked at what, um, what Dickie and Cole do for Ship 30 as well. And I like how they actually keep it on brand and then sort of retweet the big ones through their personal handles. I, I thought a lot about this over the last week and a half as you and I have been having these conversations. And yeah, Milk Road and Ship 30 were the two um, noticeable brands. Well, and the Hustle as well. But I, I think the Hustle is a little different because they're not as like thread heavy. They're more like meme, GIF and kind of snippets from what you guys do in the actual newsletter where these guys use Twitter and LinkedIn also. They use their social as like its own sort of editorial platform. Mm-hmm. So I, I noticed that. I, I was taking what they were doing and we're going to try to apply it to the copy blogger handle as well. Um, I think that'll be good. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I agree with you. Being like native to the platform with your brand yeah. is pretty useful. They're also just good at it. I don't know who does their Twitter. Their team's pretty small. So it's Sean, Ben, Diego, who primarily write it. And then they've got this guy, Billy the Kid. Did you see? He's the guy who did the the gallon chug challenge. Oh, that kid. Yeah, they just brought him on. What an idiot. (laughs) If by idiot, you mean legend. Um, He didn't even finish, though. He didn't finish it. Job, man. (laughs) (laughs) He got the job. (laughs) <laughs> he runs their like tiktok and instagram videos so i'm not sure who does their tweets but they're like they're pretty good and you'll see they they tweet a lot they tweet like five six times a day and almost every day they've got one that will go like semi-viral totally. so not not full viral but like you know a couple hundred likes so they're really really good on twitter but i've uh heard that they're most or i read rather that Interestingly, and this might be a little outdated now, but for a long time, their biggest source of traffic was actually a viral thread that Sean wrote on his personal account, which is interesting because Sean doesn't actually link to the Milk Road anywhere in that thread or anywhere in his profile. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah. So, wow, 200. I feel like this was 245 yesterday. So maybe Sean said something again 
who knows? He's always going viral. And then uh, it's important, though, one thing I want to call out, a fair amount of their growth is paid. People who are listening to this going like, man, you know, zero to 150,000 in six months. What's what's wrong with my newsletter? Why am I not getting that? Don't don't worry about it. Here's what you need to know. You should push your newsletter to like 10,000 plus organic, right? Don't even think about paid until you're like above 10,000 because below that, maybe even 100,000, to be honest, for most people. Below that, you just, you don't have enough of like a product market fit to really know that you can grow with money and, and, and make a sustainable business. So yeah, he grew a lot faster, but that's because, you know, Sean's got quite a, like quite a few resources to deploy and they can spend five, six figures on growth. And it's like, it's, they're going to make that money back most likely, you know, mm. or it's at least it's not going to crush him financially or ruin their business. They grew this fast in six months in part because they have a killer content product there was really good timing there you know they have they chose a topic that is growing in popularity and they made good use of like social media but also like pretty significant paid resources and so you got to take all that into account when you're comparing your own newsletter and don't benchmark yourself against this i guess another example would be sahil bloom uh we've talked about him a bunch He's been going for about two years and just hit, I think, 107,000 followers or 107,000 subscribers. And that's a guy who has gone viral, what, like every week since mm -hmm. 20, May 2020. So it takes time. This is incredibly fast growth. And a lot of it is because I think they're making some pretty significant paid bets. And I think people just need to know that. Otherwise, they're going to set the wrong expectations for themselves. There's a lot to unpack from this because... I think it's so cool how, I mean, you wrote this breakdown on the newsletter industry. It must have been like a year ago now. It was kind of right when you and I started doing this. And over and over again, this thing like pops back up again because it's proof positive to me that th this is going to sound like uh, pessimistic almost, but it's not intended to be. It's, there's really no such thing as a new idea. There's just the same idea executed in like a slightly different way. And and when I see stuff like this, I'm encouraged in my own newsletter because even though it's on a much smaller scale, I'm seeing the thing working in the same exact way. Like I told myself I wasn't going to start selling ads on my newsletter until I got 10,000 and I'm at like 7,200 right now. So I'm, I'm getting close. Um, and I knew that that was going to be like my entry point to the monetization is the free newsletter on ads. And then, you know, about a month ago, I launched my front end product, which is super cheap. It's, it's 99 bucks a year right now. And I got a hundred subs of that. And then maybe two or three years from now, I'll be able to spot where I can have a more expensive back end kind of product. And, and who knows what that'll look like. I always bounce for ideas, maybe just like a fund or I don't want to just do like another level of a membership, you know, like a mastermind or something. I, I'm I'm too impatient for that. And I actually don't like talking to people that much to do that kind of thing, you know, but, but we'll see. I think it's, I think the thing that you said here that really, really stuck out to me is where you, you finished with the beginning and the end of it. One, the content really matters. Like the timing is one thing, but they're very punchy, poignant, and humorous writers and the feel of it is just right on target for like who they're trying to op operate to. Mm -hmm. and, you know, three actually. 
There's the content itself, which is the product. There's the experimentation. And that's been a relief to me as well, because I think a lot of people who create things think they have to have like this perfect format and it has to be itemized perfectly and it has to have like a perfect layout and be like the same every single week and something that people can expect and, and rely on. And I think that is true to an extent because people don't like to feel so thrown off. But what they do is it's like they don't take themselves too seriously. And I think there really, really is like business stuff there. I'm, I'm just comparing this to myself because it's my own experience, obviously. But my version of this was those stupid pictures that I started doing where I would take stock images. Because I'm not a designer. And I didn't want to just have stock images in every photo because they're so dumb. But like, I don't know how to design stuff. And so I was like, what can I do that's a little bit unique? And so I took like five pictures of me smiling and then I cut off the heads and I would just put my head on top of like a stock image on, on every issue. And I think it's really hysterical. But that was my version of like not taking myself too seriously. And then, uh, oh yeah. And then the third one was, um, the fact that they still do keep it on brand. Like they associate Milk Road with its own brand and still have their personal media outlets to quote unquote grow it. But like they're packaging it as an asset that can be autonomous from themselves. And I think that's dope. Yeah. And then the last thing is just that expectations thing. I mean, this is a really cool case study. These guys are killing it. And they came out of the gate with a daily email, which is tough. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how big your audience is. It doesn't matter how much money you have. A a daily email is hard. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. really tough. And they stuck with it. So they earned this, but it's still important to remember that I don't think it would be fair to benchmark yourself against this. Is it possible? Yeah. It's definitely possible for somebody to replicate this. And I think this, like, this model works across different industries too. So, uh, what's the one? It begins with a P, but it's all about bankruptcy law and they do the exact same thing. It's, uh, you know, funny voice, gifts, memes, and they crush it on like a topic that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily consider interesting traditionally. So I think this concept, it, it extends beyond this realm for sure. And I would even go so far as to say, like, I think you could probably apply it to any industry. Like, yeah, you would be the interesting newsletter in that industry. And I think it's like, I don't know what it is. People revolting against corporatism or what, but it's like people want to talk to real people. And so if you can write that way and have fun, you're going to, you're going to stand out. But it's important to keep in mind that they, like, they just, they started the game with a lot of resources. And so when you're kind of benchmarking yourself, just be realistic and or go chase down those resources. That's, I don't know. That's the best advice I have. But dude, okay, so that was cool. That was very cool. I'm dying to hear what you got cooking up your sleeve here, Ethan. I've been like, <laughs> wanting to know. I think you're going to do most of the talking for this because I got like a million questions. But here's the deal. I'm going to buy a business. I'm not sure which one yet. Uh, there's a few reasons. And this actually ties in with something that we talked about early in the year, which is I write for business owners. And in order to do that well, you have, you have to be a business owner because there's only like, there's only so long that you can be kind of a W2 employee telling business owners what they need to care about from week to week. The concerns are just totally different. And so I know that I need to have one foot somewhere in the business world, uh, with some stakes and stuff like that. So early on the, in the year, I was like, ah, maybe I'll start. And we had talked about this notebook company, which I've been doing some research on and ultimately, man, there's a part of me that wants to do it just because I said I was going to do it. And then there's it's a, a cool passion project. 
Yeah, there's a much bigger part of me that's saying like physical products are torture right now. Yeah. Why would I do that to myself? So I I don't think I'm going to do that right now. But what I am going to do is I want to acquire some sort of online business, go all the way through that process, document it, sort of learn about it as I go, teach other people along the way, and then obviously have like a new source of cash flow and stuff like that. I'm super early in the process right now, just kind of researching different opportunities. I've literally never done anything related to M&A or anything like this. Um, everything I've ever been associated with, I either was, uh, I either started or joined as an employee. So the idea of buying a business that's already functioning is brand new to me. And it's been a lot of fun to research it. When I first outlined the project, the way I actually got into this, I was talking to Jordan. So Jordan DiPietro, we've talked about him here before. We can link up that episode in the show notes, but he's a successful guy. He uh, led growth at The Motley Fool for several years. And then as he was leaving there, he and a business partner acquired a website. Have we talked about this? It does like... No. Okay. So they bought this website for like a half million dollars and it kicks out something like 200 grand a year, 220 grand a year in revenue. It's some kind of like niche content site. So it makes money via a few avenues. One is advertising, uh, display ads. They also do direct ads in their newsletter. And then they have a whole bunch of digital products that they sell, like 250 different digital products on the site. So this thing generates, you know, 120 grand a year for both of them. And there's some costs involved with like content creation and stuff, but it's fairly well performing asset. And he's, I think they're on track to like make their investment back here in year two. After which point it just becomes, you know, a nice little annuity. And so it was interesting. I knew it was something that our readers would want to read about. And so I interviewed him for it and he and I got to talking. And that's when I said, you know, I've had my eye on a project like this myself. I want to get into it. And we had this idea, maybe I'll do it and document the entire thing. And when I first talked about it, I said, yeah, okay, I think my budget would be like five grand, right? For the acquisition, like super, super micro acquisition, super small, just get used to all the moving pieces and then, you know, flip something and just keep roll snowballing that money as I go. And so I've started the process of looking around at different options. And very briefly, for anybody who's considering this, what I'm finding is that Actually, I'm not sure the five grand mark is, is worth anything. <laughs> Tim is <laughs> sitting here laughing like, yeah, I could have told you that. <laughs> I want to hear from you in a second. But I, I, th- what I found is that like any anything you can buy for five grand is somebody who basically just built a website. It's got no traffic, exactly. no SEO, no nothing. And I'm like, I'm a web developer by trade. I've got, I've already got plenty of websites that have no traffic. Like I'm not going <laughs> to pay $5,000 for, you know, uh, I could do that myself. My price window is going up, but I found a couple options that I'm really interested in, and I want to get your take on one in particular. But before yeah, I go further, yeah. talk to me a little bit about uh, like what made you laugh when I said $5,000, because it sounds like you've kind of been through similar parts of this journey. I want to hear from your perspective what what it was like for you going through those early days or or what like clicked there when I said that. Well, just that it's it's not possible. Um, I mean, you can go on to Flippa or something and you're exactly right. It's somebody, they create like a Shopify store and then they put not even actual products, just like Amazon products on it and say that it's like the best keyboard company or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, just some like really random esoteric type product that doesn't have a whole lot going for it. What I was actually thinking through that 
and I'm very, very anxious to see the different options that you have. But I mean this truly from like not a business stance. I think it's like really honest and really like self-reflective of you to be mindful of that, that it'll make you better at your job and make you better at like what you want to do either now or for the next five years or for the next 50 years to put yourself in a position where like you have some skin in the game. That was actually what I was thinking the whole time. I think regardless of like what you choose, whether it succeeds or fails is obviously relevant because you want it to succeed. But also I think the, the bigger point is just that the decision to take that leap and like give it a shot. And I think that's, that's super dope, man. Thanks, man. Yeah, I appreciate that. And it's been really fun for me too. Like I, I love my job, but one of the harder things that I have to do is figure out what to write about every single week. Mm-hmm. And there's a, I guess there's just a part of me that knows this is, this is going to help with that because sure. everybody listening to this who's actually running a business, like, you know, the one thing you don't have a shortage of is problems that you have to solve every single week. Mm-hmm. And so literally, if you're, if your job is to write about business, just pick one problem you're solving for the week and show people how you solved it. So I'm excited for it. It's been a lot of fun. Here's how I started. And maybe this will be a little bit of the documentation process. So there's this great, I'll link to it in the show notes. There's this great resource that one of our member, our trends members put together. He calls it the deal flow guide. And it's basically a list of all of these business brokers. Yeah, right here, the deal flow sourcing guide. And this is on the businessinquirer.substack.com. So we'll link to it in the show notes. Like people have heard of Flippo, they've heard of Microacquire, um, maybe a couple others. But what I didn't realize until I started digging into this guy's material is just how many niche brokerages there are. There's so many different types. And so uh, for people who are listening, I'm just scrolling through like he's got a whole list of new and upcoming ones. Tiny acquisitions. Those are like small projects. It says they sell for under 5K, but actually it's less than 100K. Microns, which is another, you know, micro startups get acquired. So there's a lot of these like little startup marketplaces that you can go and check out. Then the big ones, Flippa, IndieMaker, um, I'm sure MicroAcquire, MicroAcquire's on here. But then there's like, okay, so Blue Chip, FE International, that's one of the ones that Jordan recommends too. Uh, Quiet Light, that's another one that he also likes. Then there's some niche ones, so like specifically blogs for sale or newsletters or all kinds of stuff. So this whole resource is just full of different marketplaces. And what I've been doing in my spare time is just you pick one and start rolling through it. And some of them charge. So I bought a um, six-month membership to Tiny Acquisitions. It's 150 bucks, I think it was. And that allows you to contact buyers directly and also see their financial numbers. And you know what? To be honest, I'm not sure yet if I would recommend it. I think if one of these deals works out, then it, it would have been worth it because it saves you a lot of time and like, yeah, but I get the impression and I'm not, I haven't verified this. I get the impression though, that when people fill out the information on this site, they're just kind of asked like, Hey, what's the revenue? What are the costs? And then the site just subtracts one from the other to show you how much profit it's making. Yeah. I'm not sure how much validation goes into that upfront is what I'm saying. So I don't know whether it's with my time, but here's, here's one that I found on this site. And this is what I wanted to talk to you about. So this, the, the company is Tallahassee Concrete Work. The monthly revenue is $687. Expenses are $10. The 
and the asking price $27,480. And then it's got some data here on the trailing six months. I'll just read this for people. So this is a site that does lead generation for, I believe, just concrete work in Tallahassee, Florida. Yep. And trailing six months, which interestingly, actually, I'm just noticing now. Oh, no, actually, I'm wrong. Okay, so January 400, February was 957, March 898, April 740, May 875, June 250. So it seems like there might be some seasonality there, but, you know, somewhere between four, like two and $900 per month. What I like about it, price range is pretty easy, right? It's it's not like a make or break amount of money. It seems like it's generating revenue. But the thing that I really like about it is that this is so specific to one city. And the thing, the first thing that caught my mind was, well, if this is what it's generating on concrete work in one city, what if I just took this model, like grew it and then started expanding to other cities in the area? Because I've seen what you do with your lead generation network and it's like nationwide, right? So I wanted to talk to you about this business and get your, I have a whole bunch of questions about the industry, but first impressions, what is the first thing you think of as you sort of see this business on the page? Two first impressions. One, I love the idea. You know how much I think that local lead generation is just, it's not necessarily slam dunk. It's just, uh, it's, it's winnable. You know, I, I guess this is kind of a good juxtaposition off of what we just did the case study on where Sean, not necessarily needed. It's, it's hard to say because you can't say what would have happened otherwise because like we only live in this, in this one reality, right? But he had a lot of resources to put into it. He had some timing. He already had like a good skill set to dive into such a competitive market. Whereas I think the majority of people will do much better by jumping into localized markets that fit some kind of need that's like never going to go away. And from that standpoint, I think it's really, really smart. From the, um, maybe not bad news standpoint, from the kind of skeptical hippo eyes standpoint for me is that I think you could replicate this site for a lot less than 20 something grand. And I think you could get a way higher CPA on it if you just know even like the slightest bit of copy because these guys aren't even trying. Dude, rip this apart because I want to do two things with this. I mean, I this might be the direction that I go, right? Lead acquisition, something like that. But what I really want to do here is I want people to hear how you think through starting and or expanding in this space, like how you kind of judge competitors. And so I see you even looking down, it almost looks like maybe you are like, you're, did you plug it into SEM rush or something? Are you already digging well, a little in bit of everything? You looking yeah. So I'm clicking, okay. I'm clicking around. Why don't you, um, yeah. Why don't you share your screen? And oh then, yeah, sure. I can do that. No I, I have to pass you back the, yeah. Okay. So you said, uh, these guys aren't even trying. Take me through that. What, what are you seeing? Okay. You have to understand lead gen is almost always search because when people look for services, they search. It's not a media play in the same way. And I, I just, it's, it's been something that took me a little bit of time to understand because I have to flip sides of my entrepreneurial brain if I'm playing in the media space or if I'm playing in the lead gen space. It's not to say that you can't use media to market a lead gen site, 
It's just you have to understand that your revenue is going to be from search. Okay. So the first thing I would notice is when you go on mobile, they're not CRO at all because 90% of the search that's going to come from local is going to be on mobile. And they have a sticky nav bar, but they don't have the phone click to call on the sticky nav. So like even the fact that so look, if you go to Sober Nation, for instance, and you're going to have to look at my screen to do this, or you can just pull out your cell phone and go to it. So you see when you go to mobile, when you scroll down, the phone number sticks with the nav. Mm-hmm. And like you just absolutely need that if you're going to be in lead gen space, because you never know where the person is going to be in the, like where they're going to be in their mind as they're reading to decide like, okay, I'm going to give it a call. You know, so like, sure, it makes sense if you're trying to get an email address to put like the email in the form at the end of the content, because the idea is you've like proven yourself so well that the person wants more. But this is different. They're not signing up for more. They're impulse calling to solve their problem. And so they don't even know how to do that, which I think is pretty weak sauce. And then second, their services pages, these are going to be their cornerstone pages and they have Tallahassee in the URL, right? Tallahassee mm-hmm. concrete work. Great domain, by the way, killer domain. But then their title tag is concrete driveways service, Florida. And so you see how it says Tallahassee concrete network at the end of it. That's going to be site wide. That means in the back end of the WordPress, they named their, it's this right here. Mm-hmm. So they don't even have a logo. What's happening is WordPress is defaulting the title of the website as the logo. And mm-hmm. so it's going to say Co- Tallahassee Concrete Network on every page. Watch this. Mm-hmm. See how it does that? So mm-hmm. like the SEO is is nothing. And then, I mean, I don't know. I didn't even check the blog. But this is where the opportunity is. Because this is where all the long tail search is that really like squeezes the juice out of it. And plus it's riddled with ads, you know? So like... All of their money is coming from ads. I, I bet that they're hardly generating any leads at all from this. Really? That's fascinating. Yeah, because if it's only 800 bucks a month, you know, look how many ads are on here. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, a, I didn't even think about that. That's a great point, though. And so, you know, a simple search in SEM Rush, they get 11 hits a month, organic hits a month. So, no. yeah, like there's there's no page traffic to the site. So two things, like one, and I really mean this, the idea is dope. Like concrete work is always available. Concrete work is very expensive. Contractors routinely bid on needs for this, especially because you could hook this thing up to a round robin where like you have like five or six different contractors that all basically bid for it. And then it rings all of them at once. And then as soon as they pick up the phone, it's, it's like a, a first come first serve. So the first one to pick up the lead gets it. What? And then they is, get built on the back end from it. So is that like a WordPress plugin or is there some kind of third party service? Where, technically yeah. speaking, how do the calls get routed to people and how do they pay for them? Technically speaking, there's software. Uh, probably the best known is call tracking metrics. Probably the best and drastically most expensive is called Call Rail. Another one that we like that we use for our own stuff. There's pros and cons to it because it's very, very customizable, but it's not very user-friendly. 
So call tracking metrics is kind of like the Google analytics of call tracking. Like the dashboards are easy to read. They got like the pretty line graphs, you know, call rail is kind of like the Salesforce where it's like, this thing has anything that you could possibly want, but like you, you could, you could go to college to figure out just how to use it, you know, mm-hmm. and then dialogue tech, which is the one that we use is so weird things happen when you're, you're selling leads, things that you don't even think of until you're there. Like what happens if somebody doesn't answer the phone, right? Well, then what do you do? And so dialogue tech makes it so that you can set up like, it's almost like the call version of scripts. It's like a call algorithm where it's like, if this happens and it's in between these hours on this day, send the phone call here. If you send the phone call there and it rings three times and nobody picks up, send it to another line. And so you can, you can create like, uh, like flows of phone calls. And that'll really like you, you have to solve that problem when you have like intricacies of, of your call network. You probably wouldn't need that for here, but you know, let's imagine for server nation, if we're selling calls to different states and like the website needs to know what state to send the call to, depending on what the IP address of the person searching from, you know what I mean? Or like mm-hmm. what the area code of the person that's calling, they get like, oh, okay, well, this is a 561 area code. Make sure you send that to Florida, that kind of stuff. And that's so all around Robin. Yeah, I mean, call tracking is is really cool. But around Robin is very simple. It basically calls all the phone numbers at the same time. And like a one-to-one is... So when when you when you call this... Well, this looks like a local area code. Actually, no, A5L, that's a, that's a vanity number. So like the way that these things work is when you... If I were to call this button right here, if I was on mobile and I click this button and I call, I'm not actually calling this number. It's sort of like a tracking code. It's like the phone call comparable to like a bit.ly link. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like I'm sending the call somewhere else, but this is the DID. So this is like the connector. Got it. And so like you can connect different DIDs to different groups of people. You can connect a DID to a, a one. You know, you can connect the DID to a one and then to a bunch of different groups of people depending on, on what you write. So yeah, that's like the mini lesson in in call tracking and how lead gen works but i don't think that these guys are making any money through leads i think they're making the majority of their money through ads and it just doesn't make any sense because if they were actually selling leads like this services tab right here where it says stamped concretes concrete driveways concrete patios first of all this should say everything these are your cornerstone pages this should say sidewalks this should say concrete stairs this foundations yeah yeah all of it and plus it should be seo'd for tallahassee you know they got their h1 tag right here that's concrete work services in florida and then they got their h2 tag that says concrete tra- concrete contractors in tallahassee tallahassee doesn't make any sense dude i'm so glad we talked through this okay thank you for all that so far i have one or two other questions if you're cool to yeah. answer a couple of I was curious about how the payment works inside of this industry. Is do those call routers handle it all? So like they just keep track of who actually picked up the call and then they'll automatically bill them, or does that happen some other way? Depends how you want to do it. You can get really creative with it. So for instance, there's a really brilliant lead site, lead gen site called A Place for Mom. It's a lead gen site for assisted living facilities and they basically create their own phone room and they take their own phone calls 
and scrub them. Basically, that's like the term that we use for viability. I don't do that. I have no interest in actually taking the calls, but like we're a small team, right? They're a huge company. So we send the phone calls directly to the buyer. Sometimes the buyer is, you know, so on stem cell authority, the buyer would be the, the clinic themselves. Or like another way to do it is sometimes clinics have their own call centers. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's also pretty common. Colleges do this a lot where especially like online colleges where they have different pockets of like, um, what do you call it? Um, not flagship, like a little satellite buildings where you can go and actually register. You know, they'll have like a call center that takes all the calls. And then within the call center, they route it internally to their satellite office to actually send it to the particular location that is willing to take the call. So the simple way to do it is you just send the calls directly to the buyer. You need to bill them up front. You know, let's say you bill them for a certain amount of calls and then they pay for it up front. And then when they get all their calls, you say, do you want to buy some more? And then they pay for it again. We, we pay on the back end, but that's because we have a good relationship with our buyers. So like, we're not worried about them not paying us, which is the reason why you bill on the front end, because trust me, people don't pay their invoices. It's like a real thing that happens. It's much, much easier to bill on the back end because you don't have to keep your eye on the amount of phone calls so much. And like, you don't have to send warning emails like, Hey, you got a hundred more calls left in your campaign. Do you want to sign up again? Here's the next invoice for your next 500 calls or whatever. Whereas for us, it's just like, this is how many calls you got in the month of May. Here's your invoice, you know, mm-hmm. and it's usually like net 15, net 30 on the invoice. Uh, so it's, it's, it's pretty straightforward, but like you can auto automatically build them as well. The, the reason why it's difficult to automatically build is because of spam callers. You know, people aren't going to pay for that and then call time. So. There might be some buyers that say, like, I don't want any call that's under two minutes. And you say, like, okay, well, a two minute phone call, that's going to be this much. You know, typically what we do is we'll bill for any call over 30 seconds. That's what we call a qualified call, but our price per call is usually a lot cheaper because we're not going through the process of like validating the phone calls for any of my stuff, by the way. So we have like a a moving website that does the same thing and the same rules apply. It's not like that's something that we specifically do for one industry or the other. It's just, I like to spend my time marketing the website and not dealing with the phone calls. So that's, that's, that's the route we choose. Basically, right after you saw the page, you'd said, I don't think these guys are making any money from calls. Yeah. Can you talk me through your thinking behind that? Specifically, what I'm curious is, um, how do you break down a business like this to understand how much they should be making? on a call because like you saw their revenue numbers and you're like i don't think that's call revenue what was going through your mind there in terms of like what you know about what calls are worth the way to find out is the the, the best way to figure out is to make a assumption based on what the ad what the click is worth so if i'm a concrete company and i'm going to spend money on pay-per-click how much does a click cost and how many clicks do I need to get to generate a phone call? And that's how you can back of the napkin figure out what an industry standard on a price per call would be. You know, so let's say we go concrete work, Tallahassee, 
I mean, right away, this is big money. There's mm -hmm. four businesses all bidding for this. And these are big player businesses. Thumbtack or Powell and Sons. So this is going to be a local business. Uh, Angie, this is the old version of Angie's Lists. I think they got bought and rebranded. And then Home Advisor. So these people don't play around. So I know just, I, I know that these aren't $5 phone calls. You know, if you come in at 20 bucks a call, you're already probably going to be half the price as these people. And okay, so I go to Thumbtack, right? How many? Well, this is interesting because on Thumbtack, there are no actual Mason areas that are ad advertising here. Hmm. They're advertising somewhere. Like there's no way for these people got to get ads, um, got to get clicks. So that tells me something. And then the other thing I would think is if I'm in SEM Rush and I go to the organic keywords, you can see that none of the search queries that would actually generate a phone call are ranking anywhere close. So the best they have is concrete driveway, Tallahassee, Florida. Tallahassee, Florida. I'm having such a hard time with that word. But this doesn't make any sense either because that's not even necessarily a buying keyword. Like mm -hmm. that sounds to me like people are looking at inspiration. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That's like someone going on Pinterest and looking on how to decorate their driveway or decorate their front lawn. This is a buying keyword. Concrete companies, Tallahassee, Florida. <laughs> the fuck? I can't say it. Tallahassee, Florida. <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> so I'm not sure it actually exists. Yeah. yeah. That's number 16. That's concrete repair. Tallahassee, number 13. You know, number 12. So... Yeah, I mean, cool site, definitely. But the traffic cost is $9. And if you're going to spend 25000 bucks, man, you can spend 25000 bucks, build your own site, and fucking smoke these guys. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think th this is, and I mentioned it before we got into it, this is uh, one of the hangups that I'm, not hangups, it's just a learning uh, that I'm going through so far, which is at this price range, it does seem like, just given the skill set that I've already got, I'd be better investing my time building one of these sites than paying for it. And so I think where, where I'm at right now, this was super helpful. I think the acquisition on this is a definite no. I might build something like this from scratch because who says I got to spend money, right? The, 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 the real sort of challenges in the running of the business. And that's what I'm aiming for. Or the other direction that I'm leaning now to is potentially using my capital plus SBA loans to get something that's a little bit bigger and has a little more traction and revenue. So uh, I've been looking at things from some of those larger brokerages that we mentioned as well, like uh, Quiet Light and FE International. And that's a whole separate conversation we can have on another day. But long story short, the SBA loans that are available open up a lot of opportunity for people in this country that I think is worth looking at if you feel comfortable running certain kinds of businesses. You know, yeah. where would you look for growth opportunities on a site like this? Man, on a like specifically this kind of site, or on a site like a like a brokerage site? No, this kind of site. Yeah. So you're looking at another lead gen site, and you're saying, "Hmm, I'm thinking about doing this. Where would you Where would you find like the most uh, upside?" potential is it seo is it like spending well, on ads or it's definitely seo but this is kind of like a, a start from the end and work your way backwards type thing and no industry is perfect like 
newsletters sound great until you got to actually start selling ads. You know right. what I mean? Like mm-hmm. agencies sound great until you actually have to get contracts signed. Lead gen sounds great until you actually need people to buy the freaking phone calls. And so I am really, really nervous here about the fact that Thumbtack doesn't have any concrete businesses advertising for these particular leads. Mm. If Thumbtack can't do it, then I think it's fair to say that a majority of your time isn't even going to be in growing the site. It's going to be in finding people to buy your phone calls. And contractors are tough, man. Mm-hmm. Like they're tough. If they don't want to buy your phone, their calls, just be like, no, stop calling me. And if they don't close <laughs> on your calls, they're not going to give it a shot. You know, they're going to be like, no, like stop calling me. It's not to say you can't do business with them because if your if your calls perform, then they will totally buy your calls. You know what I mean? They're just they're they're no nonsense business people. However, I would be nervous that you would sign up for something thinking that you're going to grow a business, and really what happens is you're just dealing with contractors all day. So mm. I would be nervous about that. Mm. The growth opportunity is to find places where you know people constantly buy phone calls. That's why we got into moving because the moving industry is actually really weird like that where movers themselves, moving companies themselves don't actually close their calls. There's like brokerage companies that close the deals and then bid it out to movers, especially with auto transplant. That's, that's why we got into that. And. I think if you can find a buyer, you know, like if there's some kind of big, I, I would, I would look at these guys, right? If these guys are spending money on ads, Powell and Sons, and they have, a, yeah, I mean, I think this is a little bit nerve wracking though, because you see how here, how the ad page is slash concrete repair. Mm-hmm. And so it looks like they're actually trying to grow this. So this is just a vanity URL and they're redirecting it to a homepage. And I don't know why. And so it's a one pager. It's basically a landing page that's built only to collect beads. And I wouldn't be surprised if they have another website somewhere that is for Powell and Sons. Oh, wait. But see, this is in Nashville. So this isn't even the best example either because all all that's happening is pay-per-click is bidding me up for Nashville search. So yeah, I don't think there's any concrete buyers in Tallahassee, like really. Fascinating. All right. Well, this was super helpful, man. I hope people listening got something out of this too. Um, yeah, this was fun. I love doing this stuff. Yeah, really interesting look at an industry that I have never like even looked into before. So thank you for sharing like what you know there. I think that just about does it for us this week. There's a bunch of other stuff that I'd love to talk about, but I think we're going to have to probably save it for next week. So to everybody listening, you know, thanks for tuning in. Let us know if this was helpful, what you like, what you want more of, and uh, we will talk to you soon. See you guys. Thanks, Ethan. Thanks, Ethan.